Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is in honor of the upcoming International Holocaust Remembrance Day, January 2023, just around the corner. Thank you so much for listening today. We have a wonderful show today, as I say, in remembrance of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Our guest is an author, and after reading his book, I have been looking forward to talking to him for a while. I'll introduce him in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any recent episodes, last week was our 675th episode, and I spoke to Lola Jaye about her new book, The Attic Child. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Dr. David Berger to answer your questions about CBD, hemp, THC, and the medical benefits of marijuana. Wonderful stuff. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, we will read it at the end of each show. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts for us. As I mentioned in our open today, January 2023 will mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I encourage remembrance in a world scarred by genocide. Our guest today, award-winning author and Smithsonian associate Jonathan Friedland, has written the amazing new book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World, which we'll be discussing today in anticipation of Jonathan Friedland's upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Please check out our show notes today for details about where you can see and hear Jonathan Friedland at Smithsonian Associates. The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World, is a true story of Rudolf Rudi Verba. In April 1944, Rudi Verba became the first Jew to break out of Auschwitz and successfully make his way to freedom, one of just four who ever pulled off that near-impossible feat. Rudi Verba did it to reveal the truth of the death camp to the world and to warn the last Jews of Europe what fate awaited them at the end of the railway line. He saw it with new clarity. The factory of death that the Nazis had constructed in this accursed place depended on one cardinal principle, that the people who came to Auschwitz did not know where they were going or for what purpose. That was the premise on which the entire system was built. It would not need a full-blown revolt to disturb its equilibrium. Even a ripple of panic among the doomed would unsettle the Nazis and their plan. The way he saw it, Auschwitz was an abattoir, and he had seen enough of those to know that it is much easier to slaughter lambs than it is to hunt deer. If you have to catch animals individually, hunting them down one by one, it is slow, awkward work. It is never as fast or efficient as driving thousands at a time, herded and neatly organised towards their deaths. The Nazis had devised a method that would operate like a well-run slaughterhouse rather than a shooting party. He understood it well because he was standing every day and every night on the threshold of the abattoir. The sight of it nearly broke him. In those ten months, there were some fellow prisoners who feared he was about to crack. But, just at the point where he might have come apart, he was filled instead with a hot and unstoppable urge. He had 
to act. It did not take long for him to realise what he had to do. If the Nazi plot to destroy the Jews relied on keeping the intended victims entirely ignorant of their fate, to ensure they were lambs, not scattered deer, then the first step towards thwarting that murderous ambition was to shatter the ignorance, to inform the Jews of the capital sentence that the Nazis had passed on them. It was the only way to stop the killing. Somebody had to escape and sound the alarm, issuing the warning that Auschwitz meant death. Around the time he turned 18 years old, in September 1942, as he watched the SS decide with a flick of a finger who would live and who would die, he concluded that person should be him. That, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian Associate Jonathan Friedland, reading from his new book, which is excellent, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. This is a true story, and as you heard from Jonathan Friedland's wonderful reading, the hymn refers to Rudolf Rudi Verba, the man who broke out of Auschwitz. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate Jonathan Friedland. Jonathan Friedland, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Nice to talk to you, too. I, uh, I have to tell you, I'm excited about talking to you about your new book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. This is just an amazing book. You're going to be appearing at the upcoming Smithsonian Associates. But I want to talk to you about the book today because I, I was just blown away. So much of this, I, I just didn't know. I'm, ex- I'm excited to get into this with you. But I wonder if we could just start by you briefly telling us about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, speaking about this book, about the issues it raises, about the story itself, which I think is, you know, I argue it's one of the stories that uh, should define our understanding of the Holocaust, I think this man that we're going to be talking about, Rudolf Verber, belongs up there with Primo Levi or Anne Frank or Oscar Schindler as one of the stories that should define and shape our understanding of the Shoah. And yet he his name is not very well known. And so this is a chance to to set out why I think he his name should be you know, in the forefront of our minds when we think about this period. Uh, And it's especially meaningful for me because I did live in Washington, D.C. The Smithsonian is an institution that I cherished when I lived in in the nation's capital. And so this is a great opportunity to, uh, to, you know, make common cause with many of the friends of the Smithsonian and people who uh, who look to it for for knowledge and wisdom. Well, thank you for that. Yes. uh Yes. it is just uh, it is an honor to have you as a Smithsonian associate and to be talking to you today about this book and about Rudy Verba. I uh, have to tell you too, right at the outset, congratulations on telling this story, on writing this book, on all of the research that you've done. My goodness, this is a, a tremendous amount of work on your part. What should we know? about the role that that Rudy Verba played in World War II. What what is what just tell us briefly what that was. Well the key thing first of all is that he was a Jewish prisoner in Auschwitz and he escaped. And that already puts him in 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 a vanishingly small category. Um I think only 5 Jews escaped from Auschwitz who are known to have escaped and successfully made their way out. 
um, one of them was taken out by an SS man, the first to actually engineer his own escape from Auschwitz um, was Rudolf Erber, alongside his escape companion, uh, Fred Wetzler. The two of them did it in April of 1944. That already would make him, an, you know, uh, I was going to say almost unique, um, but in that tiny, tiny category of people. There were other people, Poles and Soviet prisoners of war, who did manage to escape from Auschwitz. But for Jews, because they were guarded so tightly, um, it was it was almost unheard of. And certainly if people did get out, they were often just shot or recaptured. To get out and stay out successfully, as he did, almost never happened. That, uh, that already makes him somebody worthy of attention. The second thing is that he was in Auschwitz for a very long time, and that too is unusual. He was there for the best part of two years as a teenager from age 17 to 19. Again, the life expectancy of Jews in Auschwitz was measured in hours. It is hugely unusual to find somebody who was there as long as he was. He was there in the in the concentration camp, the slave labor camp that was attached to the perhaps more famous death camp of Auschwitz. You know, there were there were in a way two Auschwitzes. There was the gas chambers that are that are famous, of course, and then there was this area with tens of thousands of prisoners work being worked to death usually as slaves people who were in there survived a matter of weeks or months but he survived for nearly two years again hugely unusual but the third and perhaps most important reason is on getting out Rudolf Erber and Fred Wetzler together compiled a report that would become known as the Verber Wetzler report in secret which would make its way hand to hand across occupied Europe in secret, uh, translated in attics and in basements and smuggled copies across borders. But that report would eventually reach the desk of President Franklin Roosevelt in Washington, of Winston Churchill in London, and of Pope Pius in Rome. And as a result of that report, uh, through a series of diplomatic moves, which I set out in the book, 200,000 Jewish lives were saved. And it's for that reason that I think Rudolf Erber is a towering figure of this period. What a role to have played. And fascinating as a, as a young man, two years in Auschwitz, as you, as you say. I, I want to ask you about the man, too. Who was he? What drove him? I, I found a picture of him uh, on Wikipedia. Yes. Yeah. And and of course, there there's some wonderful photos in the in the book. He, he's a very he's a very dapper looking man. You describe him that way. He looks very charismatic. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about his personality, kind of what drove him yeah. to to do this work, especially as a young man. Well, you are right to say to the, the words you used are the words I would use about dapper and charismatic. I think that's right about him. And it's perhaps worth mentioning where I first came across this story, because I had the, exactly the same first impression you did. And that is in the, when I was 19, I saw the landmark documentary film, the Claude Landsman nine and a half hour long film called Shoah, which is a very extraordinary film, not just because it's so long. Um, but one, it consists, uh, it's an unusual documentary because there's no archive in it. It's only interviews with those who were there. And as a 19-year-old, I was very struck by what seemed to me this succession of very old and sort of hunched, broken 
men speaking in in Russian or German or Czech or so on. And then onto the stage, onto the screen, bursts this figure who is exactly as you say, charismatic. To, you know, on the, in that film, relatively young, he's got a full head of dark, lustrous, thick hair. He's smiling. He speaks English. He's interviewed in New York City. He's wearing this tan leather coat. He looks like Al Pacino in Scarface or something. Uh, tremendously charismatic, and he kind of erupts onto the screen after this succession of much more. You know, to me, they looked very old. I now realize they weren't so old, but they they seemed it to me. And that says something of his personality. He has huge screen presence and charisma. He sort of unnerves Claude Landsman because he's just, as he's talking, he's smiling all the time, uh, And which Landsman at one point says, why do you smile all the time? And Verba says to him, would you prefer that I should cry? You know, it's an odd thing to say, a sort of barbed remark. But as a teenager, what we know of him and what I managed to piece together, speaking to people who actually had known Rudolf Verbe before Auschwitz and when he was just a 14, 15-year-old, was he was from provincial Slovakia. He was unusually bright. He was a clever child. I mean, spotted early, sent to one of the best schools in the Slovak capital of Bratislava. Uh, amazing facility for languages. By the time age 17, he gets to Auschwitz, a, a young Jewish boy, he speaks, yes, Czech and Slovak, but also some Russian, Hungarian, German, some English. I mean, he is smart and also has already, even then, an affinity and an aptitude for science. So he's a he's a very sharp teenager. But I think almost as important as how clever he is, is the character of the man, which is even then present as a boy, which is a kind of defiance and an, a refusal to be anything other than a free individual. So he he rejects, you know, instruction from authority. And so when, like the other Jews of Slovakia of his age, he received um, a deportation order, a, a summons, telling him to meet at this place at that time, to get on board a train to be deported who knew where, he just thinks, well, obviously, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? No one can boss me around. And he begins the first of several escapes. And that's one reason why I called the book The Escape Artist, is he did multiple escapes in his life, both before and, surprising to me, after Auschwitz. I mean, he was a serial escapologist. Uh, and it came from that kind of defiance. You know, he was a man who would not be pushed around. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with author and Smithsonian associate Jonathan Friedland. Jonathan Friedland has written the new book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. The book is just it's fantastic. I just thoroughly enjoyed this, mesmerized by it. Thank of you. course. Thank you, Jonathan. And 
and it's getting some great reviews. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari says, a brilliant and heart-wrenching book. It just is this amazing story. And I, and I want to ask you about Rudy Verba again, because, you know, we, we look at this story now and we think they're just so am- incredible to, to hear about it and and to have told it. Do you think he knew then what this story might mean to the Jewish community and, and really to all of us today? Well, he, uh, I think, was led, first of all, just initially by a personal impulse. He arrived in Auschwitz in the last day of June of 1942, 17 years old, and again, just thinks, well, I shouldn't be here. I want to be free, and immediately is thinking of escape. And then as time goes on, a change comes about in him, which is in his motive. He he always wants to escape, but a penny drops as he's in Auschwitz, which, and and it's striking as from this distance now of 80 years on, when we feel we know so much about it, how little the people knew that it took him time, even inside Auschwitz, to realise what was going on in there. He did not realise at first that people were arriving at this place and being killed. It took him a while to realise that. But as a prisoner, he was worked and had multiple jobs. And one of those jobs, as a slave, was to work on the Alta Judenrampe, the old Jew ramp is what the Nazis called it. It was the railway platform that these transports, these trains, freight trains, would arrive night after night, loaded up, cattle cars loaded up, with Jews from all points of Europe, from Belgium, from Holland, from France, from Poland, from Greece, from everywhere. And he would see, because his job was to unload, disembark these uh, bewildered people and to take their possessions from them, because that's one of the things the Nazis wanted. And so over time, he realised this key insight which he came to was that these arrivals had no idea where they were being taken. They all thought they were being resettled for new lives in the East. Yes, against their will, they didn't want to be there, but they thought they were going to live. And that's because they had been lied to at every stage of the process. And the book sets out the really elaborate lengths the Nazis went to to lie to the to the Jews of Europe, really methodical. And so it meant when those Jews got off the train, they had no idea what was going to happen to them. And therefore, they proceeded in relatively orderly fashion. They did line up when they were told to. They, they uh, arranged themselves into rows of five and columns and so on, because they thought this was the first stage of, of being uh, rehoused and, and, and relocated to new homes. And the key fact that uh, that Verba came to was that the cardinal element of the whole process for the Nazis was deception, that they needed order in order to pull off this unprecedented thing of an organised, industrialised murder of an entire community and population. And he realised that the they were able to do it because their victims were in the dark. If the victims knew, then maybe they would panic, they would stampede, there'd be chaos and it would be impossible for the Nazis to proceed. And so it became his mission to tell the story, to make sure that people knew what was happening here. And so he memorised, he set about memorising every, I mean, incredibly, every transport that arrived, the point of origin, the number of people by that he estimated were on board, 
and even the numbers uh, that the that each transport corresponded to, which would be expressed in the numbers of those handful of prisoners who were taken off the transport and preserved, kept alive for slave labour, they would they were given a serial number, famously tattooed on their arms. That number corresponded to the transport. So he memorized all of that with a view to telling the world. And that's because he did believe, to answer your question, that it was absolutely of the most paramount importance that the Jews of Europe would find out and learn and know what had happened uh, and what awaited them, what fate awaited them in Auschwitz. And that's why he set about this extraordinary escape. I mean, you know, like a lot of boys and men my age, I'm pretty familiar with Second World War escape stories and have seen the movies and so on. But I think it's fair to say this is the most thrilling escape. And I'm obviously biased, but I think it's the most thrilling escape of all of them, how he, how he and Fred Wetzler pulled it off. And they did it in order to warn, yes, the world, but specifically to warn the Jews so they might avoid that fate. And it was fascinating to me that he, he and escapee Fred Wetzler wrote this report. The report was distributed from what? I read the deception, the Nazi deception was so powerful that that many just didn't even bother to accept the report. You know, you you talk about Roosevelt. That's right. Yeah. And even there were Hungarian Jewish leaders that looked at the report maybe a bit askance and and were skeptical perhaps. But tell us a little bit about that. What was the reaction overall as the report was being passed along? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, it was was so hard for them to get out and escape and then so hard for them to work their way through Nazi-occupied Poland, crossing marshlands and rivers and mountains and forests, only travelling at night, eventually to get to Slovakia, where they're in an underground basement in hiding. All this information pours out of them, forming this 32-page report, which then goes on its own journey, smuggled hand-to-hand across borders. And yes, as you say, it reaches Roosevelt and Churchill and the Pope, etc. And Verbal was sure that as soon as people read it, they would immediately act. And, you know, and, and this was the request Jewish leaders were making was to bomb the railway tracks to Auschwitz, because if Auschwitz was a factory of death, then take out the conveyor belts, the mechanism by which Jews were being brought there. He thought the action would be immediate. Instead, as you say, it ran into a wall of disbelief. Now, partly, uh, there were places where it was believed and some of the problems about action were practical to do with when the Air Force could bomb night or day. Would it be possible? Part of it was prejudice, where people said in London, you know, I have the document of a foreign office diplomat, uh, official rather, saying, you know, we have heard enough of these wail from these wailing Jews. You know, uh, another one says, well, we have to allow for a certain degree of Jewish exaggeration. So there was prejudice, there was practical problems, but a, but the biggest problem was that this some that uh, uh, of just an inability to believe that something as truly terrible as this could be true um, and that could could be believed. And yes, even Jewish leaders, when presented with this report, with its forensic, meticulous accumulation of facts and detail, did wonder if this was the product of the fevered imagination of these two young men who had broken out. How could we possibly 
um, take it on trust and the leader of the de facto leader of Hungarian Jewry. And Hungary is so important because at this point in the spring of 1944, Hungary is the last Jewish community in Europe that has not yet been pulled into the Nazi inferno. And Verba knew that. He was desperate that his evidence, his sounding of the alarm, be heard in Hungary because he did not want those people making the mistake as he saw it that everyone else had inevitably, uh, through no fault of their own made, which was to get on those trains without knowing what awaited them. He wanted the Jews of Hungary to know. And yet the de facto leader of Hungarian Jewry, given a copy of the report, in effect put it in a desk drawer and did not pass it on. And I account in the book for why that happened. There are complicated reasons why he did that, uh, you know, and the arguments rage to this day, and I detail them all in the book. But part of the problem was that it was something that the human race had never witnessed before. And some people, I don't think that this, by the way, exempts the leader of uh, Hungary's Jews himself. There were other things going on there, which we, you know, could talk about. But for a lot of people, the issue was just sheer disbelief. And at one point, I quote in the book, the French Jewish intellectual Raymond Aron, who said, I knew of the Holocaust. He said, I knew, but I didn't believe. And because I didn't believe, I didn't know. Yeah, the the, the story of the escape, uh, Verba's astonishing memory, the survival instincts that that were there. All of this is just the basis of this story. One of the things that struck me, though, is as, as I was reading again, I, I didn't know any of this, but I was really interested, I suppose, to learn about Auschwitz itself. Uh, it, what a what an absolutely uh, you know terrible place. But there was within Auschwitz a Jewish bureaucracy. A, uh, a hierarchy. They performed some things. They're, they're each. They were. They were there as prisoners. They were there only a very brief yeah. amount of time. But I wonder if you you talk a little bit about that bureaucracy and that hierarchy. I, I just didn't know any of that. No, and uh, you know, um, Paul, you're not alone there. And uh, one of the great compliments that uh, has been paid to me about this book is even people who are, you know, consider themselves pretty expert in the period and thought they knew everything about Auschwitz have said to me that there are things in this book that are new to them. And that's very gratifying, uh, partly because it was new to me too, to discover. I think what is known about Auschwitz is that people know that the trains arrived and Jews were let off and they were sent to gas chambers. And I think that in the sort of popular mind, that is more or less what we know. There was, as I mentioned uh, a moment or two ago, a whole other parallel universe of this concentration camp, slave labour camp, as well, next to adjoining the gas chambers and crematoria. And the two societies, in a way, or the two you know functions, ran alongside each other. Within the camp, there were these prisoners, mainly there under on the expectations that they would be worked to death and be dead within two or three months. It was all it was a Nazi policy. Literally, they had a name for it: annihilation through labour. But there were some tasks that were bureaucratic, as you say, in nature. Uh, Rudy Verber would later describe the job he then would he would get one of these jobs, and he said he was a barracks pen pusher. You know, he was somebody who acted as a registrar 
tallying the names and numbers of the prisoners each morning and each night after and before work to make sure everyone was present and correct and that the numbers added up. You know, we know famously the Nazis were meticulous about this uh, about record keeping and uh, and this sort of attention to detail and there was something like a permanent jewish bureaucracy or uh, as you to use your phrase there was a group of 2 to 300 perhaps jews whose they were still slaves i stress this they were still prisoners but the job they were allocated was in that to perform these bureaucratic functions and partly those jobs were secured because of course that was a much easier job to do than be doing backbreaking labor that could kill you and by the way Rudy Verber did some of that when he first got there but to get those jobs though those jobs were secured by means of the Auschwitz underground and that too I don't think is terribly well known that there was an underground resistance in Auschwitz and they used all kinds of methods, including bribery and blackmailing the SS officers who were, you know, sometimes corrupt and had secrets, which often non-Jewish political prisoners were crucial in the resistance. They would use the leverage they had to get their people into these crucial jobs. And Rudolf Verber became one of their people because he was young and fit and had these languages. He was useful to them. They used him as a kind of courier uh, to speak to different members of the resistance within Auschwitz. And that was partly why he had this vantage point of able to mentally collect the data and see every transport and make a mental note of each one. But also it was what led him and Wetzler, who had a similar kind of job as a barracks registrar, each of them had the wherewithal physically to attempt an escape because they they had better rations than other prisoners, they had better they were had access to better clothing, and therefore they were in that position. So that was that that fact about the kind of infrastructure and 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 hierarchy of Auschwitz uh, was crucial and pivotal to the escape that Verber was able to uh, attempt and pull off and and the research that you did to uncover that as well as the rest of this story is uh, yes compliments to you deservedly so congratulations uh, again um Our guest is Jonathan Friedland, author of the new book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. Just an amazing book. I want to, I want to wrap up, Jonathan Friedland, ask you, ask you one final question. I wonder what the story tells us about today when we, when we look at Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the climate crisis, Trump's fake news. Uh, all of this uh, seems to have parallels, uh, you know, with the deception that the Nazis took place. And I wonder if you comment a little bit on that. It, it really does for me. And it was partly what led me to this story. As I mentioned, um, I had first come across this story as a 19-year-old. I mean, a long time ago, uh, back in the 80s. Uh, it came back to me in part because, uh, you know, you'll remember that in 2016, the Oxford English Dictionary made post-truth its word of the year. This was a new term in the language that came about partly in Brexit in Britain and and, and the Trump phenomenon in America, That this thing of post-truth. And I found myself going back to this story of Rudolf Verber. Why? Because what drove him, more than even just the physical desire to save his own skin and escape, was this realisation that the difference between truth and lies 
can be the difference between life and death. And he saw that close up in Auschwitz-Birkenau, where it was the fact that Jews were lied to and in such a sustained and effective way that made their deaths possible. Uh, the two were intimately related. And that's why he was determined to get the truth out from underneath this mountain of lies, which is what Auschwitz was. Uh, and so this the absolute mortal necessity of truth is the thing I take from his story. And this point that the when people did confront the truth, um, uh, finally, their struggle to believe it, even when the facts are set out in front of them. And, and, you know, on the one hand, you think about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which, by the way, happened after I had finished writing this book. Um, but there was, you know, the Russian leadership telling their people lies about what was going on in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, at the, at the level of a sort of systematic state level. And then also you think about the, you know, the climate crisis and the warnings that scientists are you know, they're banging the table, they're pounding on the doors, telling us what's going on. We have all the facts we could possibly want. And yet something in us prevents us or, 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 or makes us fail to act. And again, there is an echo there in this story. And so I think of often the it's easier or it gives us a fresh angle on the world we live in now to look at it from a different time in a different place. But that necessity of truth and our struggle to absorb and accept the truth are big parts of our world now, but I think they're shown up in really vivid clarity in the story of this extraordinary man, uh, Rudolf Herber, uh, the ex um, extraordinary thing he pulled off and the way the world responded. I think there are big echoes, big lessons for us today in the story of the escape artist. So important. Jonathan Friedland's been our guest today author of this fantastic book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. We will have links to where you can find out more about Smithsonian Associates Jonathan Friedland and his upcoming presentation there. We'll put up links to where you can find out more information about Jonathan Friedland and all his work. Very busy man, a playwright, uh, author of thrillers uh, in a pseudonym known as, as Sam Bourne. Jonathan Friedland, we know you're very busy. We so appreciate your time. Thank you for the reading and for being so generous with us and for this just absolutely brilliant story. One, again, congratulations on this book. Paul, you've been hugely generous. Thank you very, very much indeed. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. My thanks to author Jonathan Friedland, who will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out our show notes from today for more details about Smithsonian Associates featuring Jonathan Friedland. We're grateful to Mr. Friedman's time, his research, and his generous reading. Again, the new book is The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. And my thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I'm telling you each and every show, followed by my message to eliminate assault rifles. Only members of the military use these weapons. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn. School. Let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.